Hey, 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 beautiful humans. It's the Juice Queen here, delivering all those ooey-gooey, drippy topics that will leave you simply drenched in curiosity and connection. So let's vibe over, you know, the juice, shall we? My name is Mila Mandolfo, and my sole mission is to make you feel seen, heard, valued, and validated in such a way that you remember who you truly are. And in that, you're never alone. This is a soft, safe, and sassy place where all of you is welcome. So come on, let's dive in. Hello, beautiful people. Today I'm recording from a small rainforest village in northern Colombia. So a little disclaimer that you might hear tropical bird calls or children giggling from time to time in this episode. I also want to share that this is episode two of the communication series, which means if you haven't tuned in yet to episode one, I highly encourage you to do so because I'm creating this series in such a way that each one is serving as a sort of prerequisite for the next and that we're slowly building um, a foundation of basics so that by the end of this series, we'll have built like an entire tool shed of communication resources to pull from. But in order to do that, we need to really pave out this foundation. So this is the second foundational course. And I would really love if you could hop back to the first one if you haven't listened to that yet. And if you have, welcome. Let's do the damn thing. So in today's episode, we're going to explore attachment styles, apology languages, and love languages. We're just going to touch on each of them, and we're not going to dive too crazy, but again, we just want to get those basics embedded um, to better understand ourselves and our loved ones, because once we understand how we operate and our loved ones operate, that's how we can better build a cohesive conversation with them, and we can better understand why they do or don't have certain communication patterns. First up, I want to discuss the attachment theory. So in the 30s, a child psychologist named John Bowlby formed this theory that states a human's first attachment is developed in infancy with their primary caregiver. So as we all have seen, a child is attached to their mom or their grandmother or their auntie or their father or their uncle or their sister or whomever is that primary caregiver. The one that wipes their ass, gives them food, protects them, offers them shelter, hugs them, holds them, talks to them, soothes them. Even if it's not necessarily a 10 out of 10 caregiver, whomever the one that is meeting the needs of the infant is thus the primary caregiver. So the infant creates a attachment, right, to the person meeting their basic human needs. The level of responsiveness in which that caregiver meets the needs, so there's like a spectrum, right? Like 
maybe they're 10 out of 10 meeting all the needs. They're this super nourishing caregiver who, you know, clothes, feeds, sings to, rocks to sleep, engages in, um, you know, educational play, does everything 10 out of 10, right? Maybe some rock star caregiver that has all the time for this baby. Now, there can be, on the other side of the spectrum, a very basic caregiver who is literally just, you know, providing formula and a place for this baby to sleep. (laughs) Even if perhaps that caregiver is maybe an addict and they're hardly present or maybe not even hardly around or the baby's in dangerous uh, settings and environments. And yet they're still getting the most basic needs met to survive, right? So this responsiveness to their survival needs, that range that we're discussing, has an impact on the attachment with the caregiver. So if the caregiver is giving consistent attention and um, nourishment to the infant, there's a healthy attachment bond happening here. If the caregiver can't meet the needs consistently. It's, it's an insecure um, attachment. The baby and later on the child and the adult can't rely on that caregiver to meet the needs because they haven't. They just haven't done so. So that baby, that person learns to first of all, not rely on them, right? They can't rely on that caregiver to meet their needs. And also, they learn to probably meet those needs elsewhere, oftentimes on their own or through whatever fucking means accessible to them. And because of this wavering um, attachment, I sigh because it's so unfortunate and I sigh because... Most people, even if it's not that far low on the spectrum like I'm describing, most people have a wavering, insecure attachment with their caregivers. Not because our caregivers don't love us or don't think we deserve the best, but literally because they... Maybe they weren't ready for children or... They don't have resources, whether it be emotionally, financially, mentally, and so forth. Whatever the reason may be, I I have compassion and hmm, sympathy, empathy for the majority of humans, because it's it's more the majority of us than it is um, the majority of us are operating from some type of insecure uh, attachment style than a secure one. So there's four different styles, three of which are insecure, um, and one of which is secure. This is the language that they use. It's, I'm not calling everyone insecure, you know? I'm just saying the attachment style is insecure. It isn't safe, it's not secure, okay? So that's what I mean by that. Um, but for that 25% of people, or sorry, that's not, that is not the stats. One, one quarter of the different styles is secure. 
Um, it doesn't equate out to how many people are actually secure. It's not like 25% are secure and then 25% are anxious avoidant and 25% blah, blah, blah. That's not accurate. There are four different attachment styles. And it's very actually uncommon for people to be operating from a secure style because nobody's fucking perfect, right? It's very rare that um, to have one incredibly present and uh, secure parent that meets all of our needs as children, um, let alone two, right? I'm just offering this because I don't want anyone to feel like they're... um, when we go over these and they, you're probably going to, um, you're going to hear some of these attributes and you think, Oh, that's me. Oh damn. I must be insecure. Oh, what's wrong with me? And I'm trying to offer that. No, that's not the case. It's not something's wrong with you. What's happening here is just an observation of human dynamics. And the beautiful thing about this is let's say today you learn that you are operating from an anxious, um, secure, uh, 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 sorry, an anxious attachment style. When we become aware of our intrinsic attachment style, we now have all this information, all this uh, knowledge and all these resources to better understand ourselves and the whys and the hows of the way we interact and communicate with other people. Then, with that knowledge, with that power, we can choose to pause and observe our reactions, our reactivity, and then slowly over time, a practice, we can intentionally swap out some of our reactivities with responses. And over time, those responses will become your natural day-to-day reality. And that's how you become um, more secure in your attachment style. So yes, you can go from an anxious attachment style to a secure attachment style. It just takes attention, intention, and practice. And patience, baby. Patience as well. Um, so... Let us explore this. Um, I also just want to name, like, removing shame from whatever attachment style you end up resonating with, if you feel this to be true for you. So we're going to go over these, but I'm also going to link some quizzes in the show notes like I did on the last episode. Hopefully, hopefully if you've listened to the first episode, you already um, know which of these styles uh, that you are. But I still just want to go over the traits briefly because it's important. And we didn't get to in the last episode. All right. So a secure attachment style. Again, this is someone who grew up with one or more caregivers that were present and attuned to their needs and thus met their needs, maybe even met their needs before they had them. Um, and 
created this safe environment in which the child didn't have to worry about survival. And so they got to experience play and pleasure and joy and creativity. Because when we feel safe, we open. When we feel unsafe, we shut down, we close down, and we have to worry about basic needs like, um, well, safety being the first thing, like security in our nervous system. Because when we're feeling um, unsure if our mom will ever come back, like when you're an infant, you don't, you might not have like words to express yourself or like a particular level of cognition. But when your mom leaves the room and you're a baby, what, what often happens? Babies often cry, right? They freak out, where's mom? That's because they have an insecure attachment with this caregiver. They don't know when she's going to come back because history has shown that sometimes she leaves for three days and then the baby doesn't get fed or whatever the, whatever the case may be. Um, that's an extreme example, but hot and cold, right? So, and that, that's something you might see in modern day relationships. You'll see someone going after an emotionally unavailable partner who some days texts them instantly, shows them affection, spends the night, right? So all the needs are being met and the, the happy hormones and chemicals are being released. Then the next day that person leaves and ghosts them. They don't talk. They don't talk to you. You have this, even though that's fucked up and disrespectful and you deserve more than that, you still crave their attention. You, you're sitting by your phone. You can't wait for them to respond, even though you know this is fucked up, right? This is similar to the attachment style. You become anxiously preoccupied with the thought of when are they going to come give you some love, right? Similar to a baby who has inconsistent caregiving. Okay, so that's just an example. So back to the secure attachment style. A secure attachment forms when the caregiver is nearby, accessible, and attentive to the child's needs, emotionally, physically, financially, and so on. This allows the child to feel safe, loved, confident, and then operate from a place of balance. When we feel secure, in our nervous system, we are better able to express our needs, boundaries, desires, passions, fears, and so on, right? Like, we don't feel afraid to name what we need or name when we're upset because we feel safe to do so. Our coping skills are more refined in that way. So yes, if you have grounded caregivers, you may be secure, but also, again, if you had a rough childhood, with practice, you can actively choose secure tendencies that will eventually bring you back into balance. So if you have an, a secure attachment style, you might be attuned to your own emotions, but also the emotions of others around you. Because your regulatory system is so grounded, you get to pick up on things that people who are in survival mode don't have access to, right? In that way, you also learn to trust others because you have been exampled trust in your personal sphere. You have more of a willingness to communicate than someone who is in an insecure attachment style. 
You are open, cooperative, you're flexible, you don't need everything to go your way, you're more, you're more flexy, um, but you're also assertive with your needs, right? So in the, in the first episode, we talked about being assertive versus, versus aggressive or passive-aggressive, right? So if you're, if you're secure, you're probably operating from an assertive, direct, and compassionate communication style. You prioritize and exhibit strong relational skills that are collaborative and mutually beneficial. You have tendencies to self-regulate, but also co-regulate. And we're going to talk more on that in future episodes. You create healthy boundaries that are, again, fairly flexible because you don't fear being um, overwhelmed or enmeshed with another person because of those healthy boundaries. And you might also respond to the needs and the bids of connection from other people more openly and more easily, okay? So this is a type of person that you, if, if you've been around someone who feels secure, you might feel comfortable around them. You might feel at ease. You might feel like they're grounded, they're balanced, they, they are more equanimous, like they can hold, uh, they can hold balance in um, uncomfy or um, dysregulating circumstances better than most because, again, due to not having to always have been in survival mode, they have learned over many years coping mechanisms that keep them grounded. And so their mind operates differently. Their mind has more access to mm, more grounded modes of problem solving and connectivity and so forth because they had the privilege of consistent safety in their childhood, um, growing up and at home and so on. So like another example might be when you're, when you have a secure attachment with your family members, these are the kids who, when you're at in grade school, they excel more maybe, and they have more access to creativity and like expressing themselves and they get along with everyone because <clears throat> their home life is so steady that they feel safe already again, because they're not in survival mode. They feel so steady and like balanced inside their body um, that when they're at school, they now get to explore and adventure and branch out. Uh, they don't feel afraid of, you know, is mom and dad going to be screaming when I get home? Like, am I going to miss another meal because we don't have enough food at the house? Those thoughts, <sighs> it's just, it's a shame. It's a shame because we all deserve um, we obviously all deserve safety and we all deserve meals on our plate. And we, it's not about deserving. I'm just, again, sinking into some empathy here because it's just, it's, a, it's unfortunate how many of us have to go through the varying uh, spectrum of, of getting our needs met as children, right? <sighs> but at the same time, Without challenge, right? With challenge, we grow, we grow character. And we wouldn't be who we are without these obstacles. And it's, 
it's through the varying degree of humanness that makes our life, our lives so diverse and variant. And so if we all had super nourishing home lives um, and thus super secure um, attachment styles, well, first of all, I want to say that would be such a lovely world, and I hope that we can all move towards that. And the first step in, in gain, getting there is becoming aware of where we're at and how we became that way, and thus putting intention into how we want to show up for our children and our loved ones and our nieces and nephews and all the young children around us so that we can show up and offer some sort of safety for them. <clears throat> Okay, I feel like I digressed a little bit, but this is a sensitive topic. Um, let's hop into the next attachment style. So when you have an inconsistent parent or caregiver, and there's like a push-pull dynamic of their attention and their love, the infants become unsure of their ability to meet their needs and then they develop an intense anxiety or this intense craving and seeking for affection and attention, which leads to like a hyperactivity in getting those needs met. This can result in coming off as needy, clingy, you know, maybe even overwhelming and obviously insecure. So the first insecure attachment style we're diving into is the anxious attachment style. <clears throat> So the anxious attachment style has a very sensitive nervous system. They can be deeply sensitive to outside threats and feel threatened um, and maybe jealous when, you know, in varying relationships. They're constantly seeking um, external validation that their loved ones still love them. They can, they can have uh, strong fears of being abandoned. They also struggle to have consistent boundaries and maybe none at all. And they also struggle to express those, you know, their needs, those boundaries and needs. Um, they can also project their fears when they feel threatened or upset by either maybe acting out or getting even, or maybe they're just become um, dismissive, or perhaps they are people pleasing. There's a huge, you know, that fight, flight, fawn, freeze, those react reactions that we spoke on in the last episode, they can project their anxiety through any of those forms of acting out. They can also experience healing, as all of the attachment styles can, when reliability and consistency in their relationships is present. So we kind of touched on this before, but like an, an example of uh, anxious attachment style is, say you get into conflict with somebody um, and it's like, it's kind of heated. Now, a secure person might be like this. 
hey, this is getting really heated. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. I can tell you're also getting overwhelmed. Why don't we take like a 30-minute break um, and we can come back to this. I'm going to take a quick walk and process a few things. Okay, so that's an example of what a um, secure attachment smile would do in that situation. An anxious person, an anxious attachment style person, <clears throat> even though that secure person offered context and timing and um, took a really grounded position, right? It made a lot of sense. It was rational, right? And it was compassionate as well. The anxious attachment style still feels an urgency um, to connect right away. 30 minutes? 30 minutes of me feeling like this? Oh, hell no. We need to fix this now. And so they might start becoming loud or big or um, acting out and like demanding that the person stay. No, we need to fix this right now. Where are you going? Please don't leave me. Where? You know, those types of things. It's, in, it's usually a very physical react, reaction in the body of like, oh my God, please don't go. Like I feel like, and what's happening there in the body is dysregulation in the nervous system. Hmm. So an anxious response would be to cling, right? Do not leave. Holy shit. Please stay. We need to fix this right now. I need this feeling to go away. Do not leave me like you know, my primary caregiver has when I was a baby, even if this person is completely unaware that the origin is from their childhood, is irrelevant. These actions are still taking place. <clears throat> the next insecure attachment style is the dismissive avoidant. So when a parent is absent or neglectful or even maybe abrasive with their children, kids can form an avoidant attachment style because they learn they cannot trust their parents to get those needs met. They're never around. They're being rejected. They're being neglected. Um, and the parents are cold. And the, the, the children thus then turn cold, distant, hyper self-reliant as a coping strategy, right? Like, okay, this young baby, this young child recognizes, oh, this caregiver doesn't come home sometimes. Word. I'm going to start eating Cheez-Its. I'm going to start sucking on my passy. I'm going to start filling in the blanks getting my own needs met because that's like my inherent survival strategy. And so now they don't need anyone. They don't need the caregiver, right? And even if the caregiver, caregiver comes back around, there's like this dis disconnect between the child and the caregiver because, and it's not necessarily intentional. It's not like the child is like, I'm going to get them back for doing me dirty. No, it's literally... A, a systemic thing happening inside of our bodies that is like, oh, well, I don't need that person anymore. I've just been getting along just fine. And we learn to hy be hyper vigilant and, um, and um, self-reliant. 
So dismissive avoidance can appear to look very put together and very independent. They tend to rely on themselves, including any emotional comfort. They downplay the importance of relationships and they downplay the importance of others' needs. They can be very understanding and respectful of other people's needs for space. They can struggle to be vulnerable. They can struggle to express their inner world and their, their needs. Their boundaries are inflexible. Their boundaries are, it's their way or the highway energy when it comes to dismissive avoidance. Why is that? It's because they have learned that, you know, in order to survive, they have to do things a certain way. And like, why would they change that? Why would they change that for anyone? That's what's gotten them through. So they tend to have very inflexible boundaries. And they often are cautious to trust others, again, for the same reason. Like, why would I trust you to meet my needs when I've been meeting my needs this whole time? <sighs> so dismissive avoidance, um, when having conflict, for example, they might just avoid the conflict altogether. Like, if things start to get, like, heated or disconnected, they'll probably just shut down and kind of act like, not even necessarily, quote, act. Like, they literally will shut off. They literally will just be, like, disinterested, um, shut down. Like, this has zero interest, like nonchalant energy, like their whole face and their whole body is disinterested. And they're basically, oftentimes they're like something like, all right, well, I'm going to leave, you know, something like that, or stop responding when it comes to messages. They just, you know, kind of go on ghost mode. Again, this is called dismissive avoidant, right? So it makes sense. Yeah. Like they are uncomfortable with the other, capital O, other, because the other was never there for them. So when another has needs or has requests or conflict or whatever, they're so used to meeting their own needs and taking care of themselves that taking care of another or responding to another's needs, boundaries, and desires is just like perplexing. And that doesn't, that does not mean that all dismissive avoidance are like cold hearted and like unloving people. That's not, that's not true. Almost every single human on earth, in my opinion, you know, comes from a place of love, even if it doesn't feel that way. We are all love deep down inside. That's what we're all made of, right? But these particular humans, due to their upbringing, don't have as much access to expressing their love. That's more true. In fact, oftentimes with dismissive avoidance, as soon as a relationship, even if they like the person, like even if they love the person, in a romantic relationship, it, it's often the case with dismissive avoidance, like as soon as things start to get serious or like the love, like, you know, love bombs, the L word is dropped, uh, dismissive avoidance run for cover. They want to 
avoid, <laughs> right? They want to avoid potentially being let down by a caregiver, a lover. And so it's often the case that a defense mechanism is to just like go totally nonchalant. And that's not even, like, again, that's not even, I'm not even saying that they actually stop having feelings for the person. And I'm also not saying that it's like this intentional malicious thing. I'm saying that it's actually just a programmed reaction. It's a program reaction. And that's why, again, like I was saying earlier, with intention and attention, we can practice our way out of these patterns. Because if you become aware that you're a dismissive avoidant person, the next time that you are in an intimate or romantic relationship and you have this knowledge, you can be paying attention to, oh, I'm curious if I start to have big feelings, am I going to turn away and shut down and like cut them out? I wonder if that is going to happen. You know, you can be curious about it. And let's say that it does happen. Maybe a week afterwards, you might remember this and you might think, shit, did I do that thing? Is that like a pattern of mine? Do I actually not care about that person and not want to be with them? Or is this just like some deep programming that I need to like face? Hmm. And, you know, curiosity um, is what breeds healing. So that's how we, that's how we crawl out. That's how we crawl out of our patterning. So on to the next, the, the last attachment style is the, okay, so this one has multiple names. Um, so this one is the fearful avoidant, but it's also been referenced as the chaotic or disorganized attachment style. And this is why. The fearful avoidant or disorganized is a combo of the anxious and the avoidant. So that's why it can be termed as chaotic. And also it's termed chaotic because it's typically the case that these children were raised in a household in which there was chaos. Um, maybe there was like intense love, like intense attention and love. And then the parent disappeared for days because they are an addict and they are off, you know, fixing, fixing that addiction. Um, and what I mean by that is getting their fix, not actually fixing it. Um, so there's this really intense back and forth with the chaotic energy. And so the child doesn't know if they want to, you know, lean away and like avoid the dynamic because their their little their little person system can feel that that shit is not the vibe. <laughs> They're like, "Oh, this doesn't feel really good. Do I want to like avoid this?" Or the parent comes back and they shower you with gifts and they, and they give you fucking ice cream and they like show you all this love and affection even though you haven't seen them for a week. And so it's confusing, right? It's super confusing. And you're like, oh, wait. And then you, then you get all this love and now you have that craving from the anxious side, right? Where you're like, no, don't leave, mom. Oh my God, don't leave me again, right? So it's both combined. And so it can show up as a combo of the two. So when a parent is a source of threat or fear due to being unpredictable or abusive or addictive. 
disengaged mental health issues and so on. Um, the caregiver fluctuates between absence and caring, which confuses the child and leads to both the anxious and avoidant tendencies because there's no consistency. So fearful, avoidant, or chaotic attachment style might be um, often codependent. So you might often need to be around people. You hate being alone. You need someone to go to the grocery store with you. You won't go to events by yourself, things like that. Or in relationship, you're codependent. Like when you have a boyfriend or a partner of any kind, you, you want them to do this with you, that with you, do this for you. Um, it's a very like enmeshed dynamic. You want them there all the time. You might have a strong fear of being used um, or betrayed or exploited in your relationships. You might pull away when you're starting to feel rejected or you might pull away when you feel overwhelmed. You might be deeply empathetic and attuned to the needs of others around you. You might have significant trust issues. You probably feel anxiety or helplessness um, when falling in love or depending on others. And you'd probably avoid confrontation as a whole. Hmm. So the chaotic attachment style is harder to pinpoint. Um, because it can really go either way. And it's also interesting and important to note that different people that we're in, you know, relationship with, whether that be um, friendship or family or romance or even work and school, people bring out different parts of us. So let's take this chaotic attachment style example. If you're dating someone who happens to be dismissive avoidant, so for example, they leave you on red often, like they, they'll open your message and not respond, but you see that they read it. This can trigger an anxious attachment style or a chaotic attachment style to be extremely overwhelmed, extremely anxious, and just chomping at the bit. Um, and you just desperately need this person's response and their affection and their attention. Or perhaps, coming back to this chaotic style, perhaps you are getting so much attention. You're getting so much affection. You're getting so much love that you fear that this person is going to dip out and you're just feeling like, this is too much. This can't even be real. And so then you start to pull away. You start to avoid them. So it can go both ways. Chances are you know and love someone in each of the attachment styles. So now I want to briefly touch on how we can show up for the different attachment styles. If you know someone who's an anxious attachment style, then here's a few ways that you can show up for them. One, if you guys have a dynamic with there's physical touch, you can 
reach out, touch their hand when you're, you know, when you're going through conflict. That's very comforting. Um, you can offer hugs, eye contact. If this is a friend, for example, that you don't talk to every day, you might, whenever you think of them, message them, hey, haven't seen you in a while, but I really miss you. And you can name a memory or you can ask them if they want to meet up sometime soon and just tell them something about them that you value. This will be a very reassuring thing for them. Keep in mind, they're used to their loved ones disappearing. So these are small ways in which you can reassure them that you're not going anywhere. If this is someone like a romantic partner and you talk to them every day, an easy way to make your anxious attachment style partner feel loved is to like literally just send emojis from time to time, like a kissy face or even just like, I can't wait to see you later or I miss you, you know, very simple stuff, but also not, not leaving them on red, responding in a decent amount of time when they, when they reach out to you. Now, if, you know, I'm not saying abandon your own self if someone is messaging you a whole bunch because they are an atta uh, anxious attachment style and it feels overwhelming for you, which can also be very true and valid. Um, but you could say, hey, I see your messages coming in, but to be honest, um, I don't have time right now to get back to you. Can I call you when I get off work? Or something like, hey, babe, I see these messages coming in, but... Um, you know, I, I'm with, I'm with so and so, and I have to get off my phone. But you know, this is really important to me. So, um, give me like an hour, and I'll, I'll you know, I'll, call, I'll check back in. Something like that. You know what I mean? Like, often giving context of time is reassuring for someone operating from the anxious lens. Like, hey, you know, instead of just totally ghosting them and leaving them on red big no-no there. That is just going to like fuel the fire. Just give them a brief message of like, I'm going to get back to you as soon as I can, but I can't right now, but I love you. Something like that, right? Just simply reassuring. Let's move over to how you can show up for your dismissive avoidant friends. So again, dismissive avoidance, they're super hyper independent. They like to do their own thing. You know, they have a hard time expressing themselves. They have a hard time being flexible, things like that. So, and, you know, sharing their feelings and all that jazz. When it comes to dismissive avoidance, it's good to really honor their space, um, not kind of like the opposite of the anxious, right? Like, try not to blow them up, right? Do not blow up their phone. Do not, uh, you know, project shame and blame onto them for not being super responsive. Like, that's just who they are, right? So you could hit them up once or twice, um, and then if you notice that they're not responding, you could just say something like, hey, just let me know when you have free time. I'd love to circle back around to this. Or uh, you could just frame it in the way of when you have time, right? So it gives them their power and they feel safe. Because when you try to take away their power and you take away their balance, that's all they ever knew growing up, right? So they need to feel secure in that way, which is that they are safe, right? So when you're constantly imposing on their, what they feel is their, you know, their independence, they might push you away. And, and if that's not something you want, you got to honor their spaciousness. Um, so a few things that you can say, you're dismissive avoidant friends. When they're, when they're feeling like threatened, um, so oftentimes they're going to shut down when they're feeling threatened. 
So when someone pulls away or shuts down, you can say something like, how can I support you right now to feel safe? Or is there anything you need me to do to acknowledge around what just happened? Or I'm wondering if I hurt your feelings around something or criticized you in some way without knowing. Let me know how I can fix that. Do you need space right now? Um, would, you like, would you like me to come back later? Um, should we take this call another time? Um, I hope I'm not being intrusive. I definitely want to honor your space. But this is also important to me. Let me know where your head's at. Things like that. Your needs are important to me. And it's also okay if you don't know what your needs are right now. Please let me know how I can make it safe for you to express yourself. And if you need time, that's okay too. Things like that. Giving them permission to be where they're at, right? And dismissive avoidance, they might not love physical touch. They might not love eye contact. That shit feels overwhelming for some people. So, yeah. And every person is different too. It's not like all dismissive avoidance are a certain way. All anxious people are a certain way. You're going to have certain anxious people who do not want to be touched at all. They don't want eye contact either. So it's getting to know your individual loved ones and applying all these different things that we're talking about. Okay, so what about how we can show up for someone who's in the chaotic um, uh, attachment style? Again, it's a combo of both, and it takes you using both of the tools and really just checking in, right? Like being reassuring, right? Like not leaving them on red and like sending them messages from time to time, but also not bombarding them, right? And not overwhelming them. Um, some things you can say to the fearful avoidance slash chaotics attachment styles are, I can understand why you might feel like running away sometimes. You are safe to feel intense feelings with me. I can handle them. It's okay for you to feel scared when things become overwhelming between us. It's okay that you need more time to be able to trust me. Take your time. I'm not taking any of this personally, and I love you no matter what. <sighs> so, again, I'm going to link a book or two in the show notes around the attachment style. And also, if you didn't find the quiz in the last episode, I'll probably link that again in this one. But the books that I recommend are The Attachment Theory Workbook. Five stars, guys. Get that book. Not only does it help you figure out um, like your attachment styles, but it also gives so much advice on how to interact with the other styles as well. And tons of advice on becoming a more secure attachment style as well. And the other one is called Attached. So why did we discuss attachment theory? We discuss attachment theory because as you can see with each style, there is a particular way of shutting down or showing up or communicating or not communicating based on their childhood, based on their attachments. 
in order to understand why your loved ones do or don't meet your communication needs, this is one of the primary steps in figuring, figuring it out and then figuring out the next steps into becoming more connected. Does that make sense? If I'm constantly being let down by someone that I really love in my life and I don't know anything about this stuff, I'm going to be taking it really personally. I'm going to be like, why are they like this? Why are they doing this to me? What the fuck? They're such a dick. They're such an asshole. La, 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 la. Story, 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 story. But if I know this information, I can offer more compassion and understanding and I can start to, I can have more understanding about them. I have more understanding about myself. And now I can build a cohesive dynamic in which I can show up with intention, right? I'll pay attention and then I'll lead with intention and I will practice. I will practice responding versus reacting. And slowly but surely, I will respond my way out of this pattern, okay? Okay, I know that was a lot. So we're just gonna switch gears and you know, end this episode with the work of Dr. Gary Chapman, who was a former minister, a counselor, and the founder of both the infamous love languages, the five love languages, and the apology languages. You can find both of these quizzes online, and I'll post them in the show notes, um, as well as his book, the Five Love Languages, which is, you know, sold millions and millions of copies worldwide and, you know, translated into multiple languages. S- super short and simple read, and it's worth giving a go, but we're still going to just touch on what they are briefly. The Apology Languages doesn't get as much attention, which is a total shame, because as soon as I figured that out, I was like, oh my God, this makes so much sense. Because People might be apologizing to us in a way that they think should work. Um, But really, if we're someone who needs, you know, well, we're going to go over it. We're going to go over all those things. But what I'm getting at is you might think that you're loving someone to the best, like 10 out of 10, um, or that you're apologizing 10 out of 10. But in reality, that particular person needs you to love them or apologize a different way. And so even though you think you're showing up um, to, you know, immaculately, it might be falling short for them. So if you simply just learn what they need and just adjust the way you're showing up for that particular loved one, it can completely transform your dynamic with them. So let's go over some of this. The five love languages... Okay, so the five love languages are words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gift giving, and physical touch. So what does that mean? So people who uh, need words of affirmation to feel loved, that might look like Sending them messages throughout the day, right? Like we just went over this with the anxious attachment style. Sending them emojis, sending them, maybe sending them songs that remind you of them. Um, Telling them when they do something that you love, like that you enjoy, you know, like, oh, I really appreciate that you made the bed this morning. That means so much to me. 
or maybe they make you a smoothie. Oh my God, the smoothie is so good. You are the best. You are the CEO of smoothies. Wow. Um, or just things like you look so beautiful tonight, complimenting their hair, complimenting compliments, positive compliments, positive affirmations. So affirm affirmations means affirming, right? So it just means like feeling affirmed or confirmed in your dynamic with them. They are telling you things that make you feel assured. Okay. So different ways. It's like saying, I love you, but in different words. Does that make sense? Um, so written words, spoken words, let me think, um, like empathizing words, words of appreciation, words of encouragement, and also, um, like active listening and engage, you know, engagement. So I used to date someone who told me that their main love language was words of affirmation. And as we continued to date, I felt like I could be doing more for them in that realm. So I started this little affirmation jar. And whenever that person would do something that made me like really stoked or if just any moment that I thought of a way that they were like bringing me joy or just something cool that they did, like basically anything about them that I thought was amazing, I would write it down on a piece of paper and put it in this jar. And then every Sunday at the end of the week, (laughs) I would sit them down and read them all these things from that week that I thought were fucking sweet and amazing. And just watching the, the, you know, watching their face when you share these beautiful little notes of affirmation with someone who operates from a positive affirmation, um, lens is such a sweet, endearing moment. And also things to avoid with someone who has words of affirmation as their love language is like hyper criticisms um, or not appreciating their efforts and like putting them down. If you're constantly nagging them, um, that's what they're going to hyper fixate on. So for example, I have a friend who um, was like, doing a semi long distance thing for a short amount of time. And she was like, he's never messaging me. And so she kept or, or picking up the phone, right? Like they just didn't communicate often when they were far away from each other, even though they were in love. Um, so she would often be messaging him. Wow. I told you I want more attention and you, you're not giving it to me. And like messages like that. After a few days of being with her, I, I, propositioned her what if instead when he did message you um you said something like oh I love when you you know I love when you say things like that or you know basically reframing it into a positive affirmation instead of like constantly being like hey you're not doing enough when they do something be like oh I really love the way you said that or oh thanks for noticing or oh that made me feel really good Oh, you just put the biggest smile on my face. Something like that. She ended up trying this and literally within a day, the, dy- the like energy in their dynamics shifted. The next love language 
is physical touch. So physical touch can obviously be playing with someone's hair, giving them arm scratches, rubbing their back, um, foot massage, massages, booty massages, massages of any kind. <laughs> um, like just placing your hand on their lap or their shoulder when they're driving or holding their hand, lots of hand holding, sitting on their lap or, um, of course, kissing, stuff like that. Now, it doesn't have to be romantic either. Like if you have a friend whose primary love language is, because you can have non-primary love languages. I know I feel like I operate from all of them, but I have one that's more primary than the others, right? Um, so anywho, if their primary love language, like your, your friend, is, a, is physical touch, I love cuddling platonically with my my friends. Um, you can you can hold hands with friend, your friends who's uh, who who needs physical touch. Their love language, primary love language, doesn't even have to be physical touch for you to offer these things to people. I'm just an advocate for cuddling your friends because human touch is a basic, or physical touch is a human <laughs> a human basic need, and uh, I feel like we all need more physical touch, especially not uh, especially. Uh, non-romantic, platonic physical touch. So anywho, again, holding hands, physical affection, making physical intimacy a thoughtful priority. Um, and things to avoid would be obviously not touching each other for long periods of time, not kissing them, not hugging them, not cuddling them. Um, because they're gonna receive that lack of affection very coldly, very loudly. Next love language, receiving gifts or giving gifts, right? It depends. So if your love language is gifts, <clears throat> this, this obviously means like receiving thoughtful, uh, you know, trinkets. <laughs> like I was naming before, maybe it's like um, you get their favorite candy on your way home to work, or you know their favorite order at a restaurant by heart. That one's huge. Um, just like remembering little things that they say so that when you give them a gift, they're like, holy shit, you remembered that? Like it's so impactful, right? Or you can tell that someone's primary um, love language is gift giving when they're just like a stellar gift giver. Like you were like, holy crap, how did you remember that? I, I've had a couple gift giving lovers in the past. Like that was their primary love languages. And I would be shook off of the gifts. Like they'd just be so thoughtful. It's not, not even necessarily like expensive gifts. That's not what I mean. And by no means is that what, um, that's not what it means. It means like the thoughtfulness behind the gifts. Like, wow, you really thought about me. You really remember this about me. This is so sweet. Right. Um, oh, my toes are curling just thinking about some of these gifts. It's so fucking precious. Um, but it's like, it's like speaking, right? Cause it's a love language. It's speaking through the gift. Um, it's, it speaks so loudly about what you, what you know about them. So cute. It doesn't have to be big. It can be super small. Um, but, and then if you're like, 
if you're on the, you know, on the opposite side of the gifting, being sure that if you're receiving gifts to like be super verbally appreciative and like acknowledging of the thoughtfulness, right? Like what if your partner's love language is gift giving and they give you this like super thoughtful gift and you, (laughs) you're super nonchalant and like, don't (laughs) give a fuck. That's going to kill them, dude. It's going to bring them all the way down. Um, It shows them that you don't see the effort and love that they're trying to show you through that gift. It's kind of like leaving someone on red, right? Like it's kind of like ignoring someone's message. They're trying to give you this message of love through this item that they've like picked out especially for you. And um, you're just stonewalling them. So uh, things to avoid would be forgetting special occasions and, again, unenthusiastic receiving of the gift. The next love language is quality time. Quality time is a huge one for me. Honestly, for me, I want you to be speaking all the five languages. I want you to be fluent in all the languages. (laughs) I've definitely been lucky to meet people who do speak them all quite fluently. But quality time is up there big for me. Like, if I can't spend quality time with you, what are we even doing? And so what does quality time look like? Quality time is uninterrupted, right? Uninterrupted conversations or just time spent together. One-on-one time. It's one-on-one quality time. Not group settings, um, not one where you're both super distracted um, or, or if their love language is quality time and then you go to hang out with them because you know that, but you're on your phone the whole time. That's not quality time. That is not quality time. Like, so, like a partner might be like, well, I hang out with you every day. And then the other person's like, yeah, but you're working the whole time. So that doesn't count, right? <clears throat> so you can like create, in, like carve out intentional time and space for that person like even if it's just chilling at the house watching movies together and cuddling but you're not you're both not on your phones you're you're like together right um or you can take walks or you can plan cute little outings or have a picnic or even we you know weekend getaways and so cute um the again it doesn't have to be extravagant It just has to be quality, and that's why it's quality time. It's not just time together. It's quality time together. So things to avoid would be, um, again, distractions when sharing that time together or long stints without one-on-one time. The final love language is acts of service. This happens to be my number one language that I speak through. Um, so what that looks like for me is when I care about someone and what I realized, I realized this after reading the book, I didn't even realize that I did this. Um, and then I read the book and I was like, oh shit, that's what that is. And so what it is for me is when I care about someone, I'll be someone to like, I don't know, like, what's a good example? Like if I know that they are super busy and overwhelmed and they need to 
or we we need to like let's say book book a hotel okay or buy concert tickets or um go to the grocery store or tasks they're literally like tasks okay and i know my loved one is busy or overwhelmed in some way i take on those tasks without blinking about it i enjoy it i know that like it's going to bring them joy and thus it's going to bring my me joy so if i can provide in that way i will so it just happens second nature i didn't even really know that i was like that and then over time I read the book and then I also had people commenting on like, wow, you are for sure acts of service. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that definitely does make sense. Um, I'm just one to like hop on the tasks, if that makes sense. Um, <clears throat> like making someone, you know, like cooking for someone or um, alleviating workload, things like that. Now, it's interesting, though, because I don't really know the other side of it. Like, because people often say, like, you speak the love language that you want to receive. And I personally have never really resonated with that <clears throat> because I actually genuinely enjoy doing the acts of service that... I don't necessarily seek out someone doing those things for me or us. Like I want to do those things, but I guess like at the same time, maybe I haven't experienced it. So I don't know what it would feel like to be taken care of in that way. Um, I guess maybe an example would be like, hmm, maybe it's like I'm packing for my trip, right? And I have like 10 things to do on my to-do list. And like, there's only, there's like, three of them that I have to do, right? Like I have to go to, you know, CVS and get the COVID test. I have to go to my bank and pull out the cash. Like I have to be the one doing those things. But like maybe there's things on the list like, okay, don't forget to take the trash out before you go. Don't forget to bring the suitcase into the car. Well, obviously I'm not going to forget that. But like these other tasks, I could see now that if my loved one knew that I had all these things to do that day. And like, I was prioritizing the ones that were like super important. And I came home and the trash was taken out and the refrigerator was emptied. And like all these smaller tasks were already completed and I didn't have to worry about them. Holy shit. That would feel so amazing. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. I do love the thought of that. Um, Anywho, some things to avoid with people who are speaking from the acts of service language is to let them, make sure you let them um, do these things for you. <clears throat> give them permission um, to do the things, but also obviously give a, a ton of enthusiastic appreciation as well. And um, if it's on the flip side and they want acts of affirmation, see, I... Again, I don't really resonate with that side of things. I've never really wanted someone to do those for me, so it's harder for me to sit, sit from that lens. But I would imagine that if they're requesting certain acts of service, like, hey, can you, you know, grab the prescription from the pharmacy on your way home? Or, hey, can you please fold the laundry like I did it earlier? Or X, Y, and Z, if you're making a particular request um, to not 
you know, drag your ass about it and to not make it seem like a huge, obnoxious chore. Um, Okay, so that's a wrap on the love languages. Now, lastly, I just want to briefly touch on the apology languages also by Gary Chapman. Now, these are amazing because once I found mine out, I'm like, oh, no wonder why that doesn't land for me, right? Like, you, you might think that you, all you have to say is, I'm sorry to somebody, and, like, that's a wrap. And then you're, you're curious why they still hold resent or maybe bring it up to you later. And the apology languages gives all this insight into why that might be the case. So let's briefly touch on those. And again, I'm going to link up the quizzes so that you can figure out what yours are. And then once you read about them, um, you can maybe ask your, your close loved ones to take the quiz as well. And then next time that you fuck up with somebody, you don't have to guess of what they need. And if someone fucks up with you, you can straight up be expressive of like, hey, I, like, I know that you said you're sorry, but to be honest, what I actually need is for you to X, Y, and Z. So let's jump into what that looks like. Okay, first up, we have expressing regret. This is the most basic form of apology. It's literally saying, I'm sorry, right? It's expressing remorse about a wrongdoing. So you might just be, and, and because it's the most common apology, it might be the most overused apology and thus the least effective for some, right? Um, and if that is the case, we have these four other languages in which you can attempt to apologize. So the next apology language is accepting responsibility. So I like to use this example. Let's say you have a child, you're at a friend's house, and the child's running around acting crazy, knocks a vase off of a mantle, and it shatters, and now your friend's pretty bummed. And so, you know, if you're expressing regret, the first one we named, you might just say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. So that's that. Now the, the person whose vase it was might be like, word, oh, you really should be sorry. Like, this kind of sucks for me, right? Saying I'm sorry might not be enough. So ex accepting responsibility is that next love, not love, uh, apology language. So you might say, if you're accepting responsibility, you might say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That was my fault. I should have been watching her, right? So you take ownership of the situation. Now, if you're genuinely repenting, which is another love, uh, <laughs> another apology language, this happens when the person who committed the wrongdoing um, wants to correct their behavior. So they might make a kind of like promise to change in a way. So it might be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I should have been watching her. Next time that I'm over here, I'm either going to have a sitter and leave my daughter at home or uh, I'm going to keep a close eye on her. You're offering solutions so that the person who you hurt can trust that it's not going to happen again, right? Um, now, the next apology language is called making restitution. So this happens when the, the, the wrongdoer offers a physical action to correct the situation. Um, so in the, the instance of the vase, they might be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. 
I'm going to replace this for you. Where did you get it? Or let's go shopping tomorrow and you can pick out a new one, right? So you're owning what you did and in order to make up for it, you're making an action to right the wrong. So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry this happened. Like, I'm going to replace this. Like, let's go shopping tomorrow and, and like, you can pick out a new one. And here's the thing. Sometimes the people, they don't even want a new one. It's just you making the offer and like taking accountability. That's enough for them. I know that has happened to me before. Um, I have like something crazy has happened like that where something of mine is destroyed. And in my head, if no one says anything, like no one takes ownership for it, I get super upset about it in my head. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, that's so disrespectful. How rude. But if they notice and then they go, oh my God, fuck, that was my bad. Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to make sure that I replace this for you. Don't you worry. I immediately soften and I'm like, oh my God, don't. Honestly, I don't, I don't even care that much about that thing. But because they took ownership and responsibility and were willing to replace it, I suddenly soften, right? Like my defenses go down. The last apology language is requesting forgiveness. Um, so this one, <laughs> I don't know, not a lot of people, it's not exactly enough um, for some people. And basically, requesting forgiveness is exactly what it sounds like. It's, I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm coming off biased because I probably am. I don't really love this one because it's basically saying, like, just please forgive me. Um, I, or I hope someday you can forgive me for this. Which is obviously sweet to its own degree, for sure. But for me, I personally operate from a um, making restitution when it comes to apology language, like I really appreciate when someone actively tries to right the wrong. Um, I don't know. I feel like in a way, a couple of these are like building off the other, right? So like it's one thing to express regret and say, I'm sorry. And then if you build on that and say like how it was your fault or like taking responsibility, which is the second one, um, it's like you're apologetic enough to reflect on it enough to take accountability, right? And if you are apologetic enough to take responsibility to the point of replacing the item or, you know, making it right in some, like, active way, for me, it just kind of, like, is, like, a stepping stone of apologeticness, if you will. So I guess it depends on the person and, like, you know, Probably also the degree of the offense as well. Because, um, like, for example, if, if someone, like, if your man's cheated on you with your sister and then they were like, I'm going to make this up to you by taking you out to dinner tonight. Bitch, no, you're not. <laughs> right? But, like, if someone, if someone, like, had to last minute bail on our lunch that we had planned for a few weeks. And I'm like literally at the restaurant and I'm like super like let down about the cancellation. But if they hit me back and was like, I'm so sorry, this is my fault. I, I should have planned this better. Can I make it up to you by taking you out to dinner? I feel totally seen and I feel, I feel good. I'm, I'm down. Let's go to dinner. Like, yeah, I might be a little butthurt at first. Um, but the, uh, 
the series of that apology makes me feel more open-hearted and like super willing to like let it go. Um, but with the, if someone was only practicing requesting forgiveness as their apology language and literally like, like let's use the example of someone bailing for lunch. Okay. And I'm sitting there at the restaurant and then you last minute message me saying, Oh, I'm not going to make it. Can you please forgive me? No, bitch, I can't forgive you. <laughs> like, that's not enough. That is literally not enough. Or even if they just said, you know, I'm not going to make it, I'm sorry. That wouldn't land for me personally. Or I'm not going to make it, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? That's not going to work for me personally. But if they were to say, you know, take responsibility and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have like booked so many things this morning. Um, that's totally on me. Um, Next time, I'm just going to clear the whole morning for us. Like, let me take you out to dinner instead. Boom, baby. Like, I'm yours. Like, we're all good. No worries. But if it's just a simple, like, please forgive me or a simple, like, my bad, I'm sorry. Personally, for the juice queen, probably not going to work for me. I might be like, that's fine, whatever, because that's where they're at. But inside, I might not be fully repaired. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not like... Um, I might be down to like, be like, okay, no worries. It's, it's okay. But inside, I probably still feel a little hurt, you know? And so if you can take a couple more steps into making sure that person that you care about doesn't feel hurt, why not try? Right? So that's, what's so cool about the apology languages. Again, this is a quiz. I'll post it in the show notes. I think it's really interesting. Um, to get to know what the language is of the people around us and what they need and prefer. So, yeah, I think that is a wrap for today's Communications 202. Now that we have covered the love languages and found out how we prefer to express our love, how we prefer to be loved, how we prefer to be apologized to. Um, now we have the resource to find out how our loved ones prefer to be apologized to. Um, we know more about our attachment styles, why we tend to operate the way that we do, um, why we are attached to, per to people the way that we are. And then also in the previous episode, learning about how if we're you know, passive, passive, aggressive, assertive, aggressive in our inherent nature when it comes to communicating. Now that we have this foundation, like this education, you know, about ourselves and we have resources to learn about the people around us, we can dive into more specific techniques in the following episodes that will allow us to hone in on how to, for example, show up in conflict, show up in our repair, um, how to assert boundaries, how to apologize, how to um, connect with our family members, how to communicate with our lovers, how to communicate with work uh, colleagues and so forth. So these two episodes were a foundation and we're going to build on it from here. 
And as always, if you resonate with this podcast, go find me on um, Apple Podcasts and leave a review there. You can also rate me on Spotify and give a follow on any of the platforms, including SoundCloud. You can find my personal account on Instagram. It's Mama Noli. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And be sure to check out those notes to grab the resources from today's episode. I look forward to the next one. Ciao, guys. Thank you.